0: Well, good morning. So glad to be with you guys this morning. A uh, particularly be interesting time together. We're we're continuing our time in the book of Exodus, and today, you know, I've said multiple times as we've been going through this book that Moses is not who you would expect God to use. And uh, this week, we're going to this morning, we're actually going to see not just Moses himself. But his family, his family is pretty messed up in ways that I think will make us uncomfortable. And, and as I was kind of studying and trying to figure things out for this Sunday, I came across an interesting, uh, para- para- somewhat parallel, as we'll see. Uh, the Lion King movie, which I think many of us know and love and have seen, or at least are familiar with, uh, the Lion King movie, Simba and Nala's family is also pretty messed up. Now, you may not know this, um, but it is it is most likely they were that Nala and Simba were cousins at the least but even more likely half siblings that's kind of weird is that weird is that null you know Nal and symbol the ones that like get together at the end uh, what they what you find out is if you study lion stuff I don't know what the name for that is <laughs> when you have a pride of lions, What happens is you have one male lion and you have a bunch of lionesses. Now, the male lion doesn't really do anything, but he's the one that mates with all the lions. You might have two or three other male lions that kind of travel with the pack, but you have one male lion that mates with all the other lionesses. And so all of the cubs are essentially half siblings, siblings, and when they become about two or three years old, uh, the male cubs will leave the pride and try to take over another another pride, of take out another male lion and become the new leader or the new mating male of that new pride. And so we actually see this in the Lion King when Scar gets rid of Mufasa. Sometimes it actually is the brother uh, who comes in and tries to take out the male lion and become the, the one that mates with all the lionesses. And so that happens. So this is weird. Because Nala and Simba... Are related, and in fact, in the early drafts of the movie, it was originally going to be called the, uh, the King of the Jungle. It was actually heavily implied that Mufasa, who was not Simba's dad, was also Nala's dad because that's how lion stuff works. And so they took that out because they thought that was weird. And then towards the end of the editing process, uh, the one of the his name's Tom, I can't remember his last name, one of the lead uh, editors or animators of the movie, it was brought to their attention, uh, you know, a couple of years later, as they're getting, putting the finishing touches on this, how you know lion packs typically work. And so by that point, it was too late in the process to try to add you know, Nala's dad being somebody else. And so they kind of just left it and hoped that people wouldn't figure it out. And until this day, maybe you haven't figured it out, but now I've ruined it for you, okay? That's weird. That's messed up. And so what we're going to see today is that Moses' line is messed up. And so if you're here today, I I do want to say this. I think you picked a good Sunday to be here, right? If you think there's stuff in your life that isn't going the way that you wanted. that you've blown it, that God you know, somewhat is disappointed in you and doesn't want to use you in any significant way, I think we're going to see we are in good company, that God loves us right where we are and can use us no matter what has been done to us or no matter how crazy our family might be. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull it up. We'll be in Exodus chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one somewhere around you. You can read along there. And if you don't own one, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We have been in the story of Exodus, which is God calling the Israelite people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. He's going to give a land for them and he's going to bless this nation from which one day the Messiah, Jesus, of the entire world... Would come And so, so far in the story, uh, last week we saw Moses, he's back in Egypt, he's approached Pharaoh and he's told, he essentially asked him to let the Israelites go and Pharaoh responds by working them harder. He says, no, you think you want to ask my, these people that I have enslaved that are working for me to leave? I'm going to work them harder. And so the Israelites become understandably very upset and angry at Moses because he's promised deliverance. They're super excited about it. And not only does, again, Pharaoh reject their request, but he makes life even more miserable for them. And so that's where we pick up the story. I'm going to read the last two verses again of chapter 5 before we continue. Again, to just give us the the details here, Moses has been rejected again by Pharaoh. Uh, The Israelite leaders are upset with him. And so here's how chapter 5 ends, verse 22, and then we'll continue. It says this. So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, He has caused trouble for his people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. In the chapter 6, verse 1, it says, But the Lord replied to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of a strong hand, he will let them go. So because of God's strong hand, he, Pharaoh, will let them go. And because of a strong hand, he will drive them from his land. So not only is he saying he's going to let you go, but he's actually going to like make you leave by the time that I am finished with what's going on here. And so God responds to Moses's disappointment Uh, with a reminder of his original promise, which is in chapter 3, that Pharaoh would uh, say no originally, but God is going to do through his power and through some miracles uh, that we now call the plagues. He's going to show his might and his his salvific abilities to save the Israelites. Once that is on display, uh, Pharaoh will move to let Israel go. So verse 2, then it says this. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I was not known to them by the name the Lord. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan that they lived and lived in as aliens. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So what God is doing here is he is reassuring Moses of the promises that he made with Abraham way back in the beginning of Genesis when God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Uh, God is saying this fulfillment is happening. And and Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, lived in this land of Canaan as aliens or as foreigners. They did not have any land of their own. And God said, "Uh, eventually, I'm going to save a people, your own people, and I'm going to give you this land as a possession. And so God is encouraging him and he also says that God here is revealing himself in a more full way to Moses and Israel than he did to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He says I in verse 2 or verse 3, rather, he says I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. This is the Hebrew word for El Shaddai, which Again, translated means God Almighty, that God is powerful, uh, that he is strong. But he's saying here, now he's going to reveal himself in a more full way to Moses and the Israelites. As we talked about a few weeks ago, I am who I am. That God is saying, not only am I strong, but I also can save. And so he's going to reveal more of his character to the Israelites. And he's telling him that the promises that I made to Abraham are going to happen through you in this generation. And just to recap really quickly, I'll read to you in Genesis chapter 15, the original promise that God makes to Abraham. Again, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are very old. He promises them that they're going to have a child, which would take a miracle because they haven't had any children at this point and they are extremely old. And after that, he then says this in chapter 15, it's on the screen, verse 13 through 16. Here's what God says says. Says then the Lord said to Abram this is before his name was changed to Abraham, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and will be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, what he's saying here, that, that God's promises that they will be enslaved and they'll be in Egypt, which in the beginning, if you remember, it starts out really well Then they begin to increase in number and the Pharaoh doesn't like it, so he enslaves and they're going to be in there for 400 years. And so God is saying, what I trusted, what I promised to Abraham is now going to happen in Moses. Should be encouraged by this. Now, we said this last week, and I think it's worth repeating how this idea when God promises something, sometimes we assume it's going to work out a certain way, and then we get frustrated when it doesn't. Again, I want us to understand and remember that God fulfills his promises, but not our assumptions. God fulfills His promises. He will do what He said He's going to do. He will accomplish what He said He's going to accomplish. But oftentimes, it doesn't look like, it doesn't happen the way that we would want. And I think for many of us, if we're honest, we get frustrated because when when God has promised something or He's, He's led us somewhere or we're trying to be faithful and then things don't happen on the timeline that we want, we get frustrated. And, and I think if we're being honest, sometimes we get frustrated uh, because really what we want God to do is just kind of get us out of the situation. And, and, and really, when, when it comes to God's timing and Him doing things maybe slower than we would have liked, I think there's kind of two main reasons that that can happen. One is, again, often we want God just to fix our situation, but God wants to give us a relationship. Right? The God of the universe, he loves us, he cares for us, he died for us, he is the way for us to receive grace and mercy and truth, and we know that in times of difficulty or in times of waiting, we can experience sides of God or different attributes of God that we would not have experienced otherwise. And so sometimes waiting is good for us because it allows us to know and experience more of who God is. A second reason that waiting can be good for us is because it, re- it reminds us and reveals to us that that it is bigger than us. The story of God is bigger than us. And it's understandable, right? We get so focused on the things that we're dealing with and the struggles that we have and the situations that we want to get fixed that we we forget and we don't understand how somehow in the future, God could use your exact uh, depression and struggle and discouragement to love and encourage other people in the same exact situation that you are in in the future. Now, this doesn't make it easy, It doesn't make it easy to wait. It doesn't make it easy uh, to wait on what God wants to do, especially if you're in a hard time. But it reminds us that we have no idea what God is going to do in the future and how he might use our story to love and encourage other people. This kind of reminds me of Adam and Citizens Church, right? Adam, many of you guys know Adam and Emily. They've been here since the beginning. As we said, their last Sunday is going to be in two weeks as they're planting Citizens Church in Kernersville. Uh, We've had many conversations together where Adam, you know, he came here. He was at seminary at Southeastern, and we became frustrated or discouraged as some of his other friends in college or in seminary were were getting jobs and full-time paid positions at these other churches, and he was here raising support. And and it was kind of difficult, right, to see that, man, I'm, I'm here. I want to plant a church. This is hard. I'm learning. I don't even know when this is going to happen, and I think he would say, if he were up here this morning, that it's been good, that the wedding has been hard, but it's been difficult, and hopefully the things that he's learned here and the sport that he's gained is going to allow Citizens Church to be a more healthy, uh, to be a more vibrant church than it would have, even though in the moment... It was difficult, and I think we can all relate. In the moment, the Israelites are experiencing something difficult, difficult. And as we'll see later on in Exodus, that God even says that their struggle was not just about them. Their struggle was also to show the generations in the future that God is faithful and He's strong and he is good. And so just remember that God does fulfill his promises, not our assumptions. And sometimes our assumptions can get us into trouble because we think God is going to move a certain way when he didn't actually say that that's how it was going to work. And this is a little bit of what the Israelites are feeling. And so we'll continue in verse six. Here's what it says next. He says, Therefore, tell the Israelites. So he says, Go and tell the Israelites this: I am the Lord, right? I am who I am. And I will bring you out, uh, I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. And rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you as my, uh, my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So in the first part of chapter 6, he reassures Moses. And now he's giving Moses the words to reassure the Israelites that they would not only be freed from slavery, but they would be given a land of their own, of their own position, or possession, and that God himself will graciously love and nurture and be their God. And so this is good news. And so God, Moses brings it to the Israelites, and here's how they respond. Verse 9 says, Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him. Because of their broken spirit and hard labor. They did not listen to them him, because of their broken spirit and hard labor. Here, here's what we know. Uh, optimism. Optimism can be crushed by suffering, right? When you've been through it, when you thought things were going to get better and things just seem to get worse, when people bring you good news or promises, you, you don't want to hear it because it can be crushed by the weight of pain and the weight of suffering. Right. Originally, uh, Israel's words were, were, were welcomed and they were they were and They actually worshiped in the end of Exodus chapter four. They were excited. But the things got worse for them. Things got worse for them. And so after Pharaoh made life harder for them, they understandably don't want to listen. Right. They don't want to listen. Because they already were told this once and things got worse and they've been here for in their entire life. There's not a living Israelite that hasn't even been enslaved, right? In their entire life. They say, uh, you say this and this happened. We, we don't believe you. And here's what we know. Here's what we know, right? That it's hard to believe the promises of God when life is painful. But right? if we're honest in our own situations or those around us that might be experiencing difficult times, it is hard to believe the promises of God when life is painful. Uh, this means, by the way, that the importance of community and church and being together cannot be overstated. Uh, One of the downsides of our hyper-individualistic culture, I mean, different cultures in different times have had different struggles. I mean, there there are some good things about it. For example, the fact that we we emphasize that every single person matters and is valued and deserves to be loved and treated fairly and respected. This is a post-enlightenment, more individualistic uh, concept and idea. So that's a good thing. But one of the down downsides is, downsizes is we, we, we get cut off from one another, and this is especially difficult when it comes to our relationship with God. Because we live in a very hyper-individualistic culture, we assume that our relationship with God is only between us and God, and that could not be further from the church, right? All throughout Scripture, we see that God is a relational God, the God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He is in relationship, and He's created us to be in relationship, and you cannot follow Jesus. Your salvation, yes, is, is between, is your decision to give your life to. Jesus, but actually living that out cannot happen on your own. And we all know this from personal experience, that when you're struggling and when life is hard, it can be hard to remain faithful, right? It can be hard to trust God and to follow God, and it becomes exponentially more difficult when you're doing it by yourself. And so it says, as a side note, I, I, do, I do just want to mention, you know, we've been in COVID for seven months. And so I guess I want to preface this by saying this. Um, if you are, are nervous about COVID, maybe us in the room or those that are watching online, uh, you and you should live by your convictions, right? Or if you have family members that are sick, and so you need to kind of stay away, then, then you ought to do that. But we do need to understand that isolation is 100% detrimental to your relationship with Jesus. It is. And so my encouragement for us would to, would to do this. What is our plan to be in community? Whether it's showing up in person here, whether it's uh, making a commitment to join our community group or to show up even when you're retired or we don't feel like it or have a close group of friends that we are actually physically gathering with to talk with and to do life with, you cannot follow Jesus on your own. And COVID has made this a lot harder because we're separated. It's hard to believe the promises of God when life is painful. And if we do not have a plan to be with one another, we should not expect our relationship to Jesus to be improving. I was watching this little I don't know, interview or something, I don't know what you would call it this week, of a pastor that I really enjoy and respect, and he's in, he's in England, and their church isn't regathering yet because they can't, and he made a really good point. He said these past six, seven months have been a, essentially a net negative for him spiritually. Right? And he said, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Right? When we're home and we're isolated and we cannot gather, we cannot pray, we cannot grieve, we cannot celebrate, it is going to lead to our relationship with God being fractured because we are meant to be in community. So again, let me say, we got to live by our convictions. I don't want anyone to do anything that makes them feel uncomfortable or unsafe. But it is true that our relationship with Jesus will falter when life is hard, and this is a hard year. And so if we're not gathering together in any sort of the, any sort of way, then we should not be surprised if our relationship with Jesus is struggling because we need each other when life is hard. We need to encourage each other. We need to love each other. We cannot do this on our own. And so we'll continue picking up the story. Uh, they're frustrated. It's hard for them, again, to believe the promises of God. And here's what it says in verse 10. Then it says this. Then the Lord uh, spoke to Moses. He said, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, If the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. So Moses has a problem here, right? If the Israelites, who stand to benefit from what's going on here, will not stand with Moses and Aaron and do not believe him, how should he expect Pharaoh to want to listen to them? Right? How is he going to do this? Nevertheless, God is calling him to confront Pharaoh, and we're going to see the, the plagues and the signs of God are soon to begin. But Moses, is, what is he doing? He's again kind of deflecting and trying to kind of protest his way out of it. When he says that he is a poor speaker, uh, some translations, a more literal, literal translation would be, I'm, I'm someone of uncircumcised lips. He could be saying that he's not eloquent enough with words, or he could just be saying that he is unclean or rather unfit for the task. Again, he's trying to say that I can't do this right? I can't do this. The point here is he's trying to get out of it because we do the same thing as we've talked about. It's not about Moses' ability. It's about God being with Moses. It's about God being with Moses. So the question we have for us as we think about when God is leading us to pursue or to do certain things, we often can be in Moses' situation. So the question for us to answer is this, right? What excuses do you have, do you use not to follow God? When God is leading you to do something, and again, we've talked about this is not just like sharing the gospel, right? Sometimes we assume if God uses me, that means I gotta tell someone about Jesus, which that can be part of it. But sometimes God is leading us to do things that we wanna do, and we just assume that we can't, and we have all these reasons why we shouldn't be the one to do it, right? Sometimes the reason or the excuse might be laziness. Uh, Sometimes it could be because we're afraid to fail, like what happens if I do this and it doesn't work out? But I do think for many of us, I think the number one reason why we we kind of uh, shrink away from doing what God might be leading us to do is because we feel like we're too messed up. Right, like Moses, we feel like we don't have the ability, or the knowledge, or the experience, or the or the relationships, or the influence, or whatever it might be, to do what God is asking us to do. Right, this is exactly how Moses is, Moses is feeling, which is interesting because then this leads us to the genealogy, the genealogy of Moses. And so, if you look at chapter fourteen, or sorry, at verse fourteen, the second part of uh, of Exodus chapter six is the genealogy of Moses, which. Might seem weird, right? He's having this conversation with God. Why are we now seeing this genealogy thrown in the midst of, of what's going to happen, of Moses trying to wrestle or trying to speak? Uh, with Pharaoh. And so, two, there are two kind of main reasons why this genealogy of how we got Moses and Aaron appears, especially right here. Number one is to show us that Moses and Aaron are true Israelites, right? They are the ones that are leading uh, Israel out of Egypt. And so, it's going to show that they actually are. They did come from Israel or Jacob himself. They are true Israelites. But it's also here. It's not a mistake that it's here. It's also here in this particular part of the story to show, off, show us Moses' pedigree, or should we say his lack thereof? As I talked about earlier, Moses' family is messed up. Now, here's the thing before I kind of give you some points about this genealogy. Uh, genealogy in scriptures, I think sometimes if you're like doing like a Bible reading plan, you actually kind of get excited about them, like in Numbers or Chronicles, because it's like, yes, I get to like skip like these next two chapters. Every chapter is a two thirds are already done, because I don't know, right? So sometimes we get excited. Is that just me? Anybody else? Okay. Well, t- there, there tells you something about your pastor. He looks forward to when he can skip reading. Um, but here's the thing about genealogies. They are rarely, if ever, exhausted. exhaustive. In other words, they don't show every generation, and this genealogy is no different. It's not showing every generation from Jacob or Israel all the way to Moses and Aaron. It's just showing us some of the key figures. And so what we see happening here is that the the nation of Israel is broken up into 12 tribes. So Jacob or slash Israel as his name was changed to had 12 sons, and each of those sons became kind of a figurehead if you would of each of the 12 tribes of Egypt. There are sorry, of Israel. Now, this genealogy only only talks about the first 3 tribes as we're going to see because it's only concerned about showing us Moses and Aaron. So it tells us the first 3 tribes and this genealogy has some specific points to make. Now, what I'm not gonna to do is I'm not going to just read straight through it because it would be confusing and that sort of thing. What I want to do is I just want to point out a couple of things. Now, if you can give me five minutes and just stick with me, I think when we come to the end of it, we'll see a bit more clearly what's going on here. And so I tried my best to just kind of give you the main points. Just stick with me. I'm going to show us a few things as we learn about Moses and Aaron's line of where they came from. So here's what it says. Just read some of it. In the verse 14, it says this, these are the heads of their father's families, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. And then it gives some of Reuben's names. And so Reuben was the firstborn child, and then it stops. And then verse 15, it says this, the sons of Simeon. And then it gives some of the sons of Simeon's names, and then it stops. This is with the secondborn. And then in verse 16, it says this, these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their family records. And then it, and for Levi, it actually expands and it keeps going. It says this, Gershon, Koath, and Morai. Lived, uh, Levi lived 137 years old. And so if we continue on, it then talks about Gershon's family line, Koath's family line, and Mirai's family line. Now, Gershon and Mirai don't get much press. Once it gets to Koath, which is the son of Levi, his second son, uh, then he, we spend more time on his genealogy because this is where we get Moses and Aaron in verse 20. So Moses and Aaron eventually show up in verse 20. Now, remember, this genealogy is here after Moses again says that he is not the one that should do this. And, mo- and so this shows us that he actually, not only from his own lack of life experience or let's say pedi- or, uh, experiences things that he's done, but his own family pedigree would not make you think that this is who God wants, mo- wants to use. And so let me just point, uh, point out to you a few things that are interesting. The first thing we see is that God's deliverer, his leader of the Israelites, Moses, does not come from the line that we would expect. Uh, the original Israelites, the hearers of their recapping these stories, this would have stu- stood out to them very significantly. You would have assumed that Moses would have come from the firstborn line because in ancient culture, the firstborn received a double blessing. They had more pri- privileges and responsibilities than everyone else in the family. So God is already working outside of how we might think because He's not using the firstborn the line of the firstborn, or even the line of the secondborn, but the line of the thirdborn. And then in verse 15, it says this, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, jakin Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. Now, again, to the Israelites, this was a big red flag. This means that Shal, the son of Simeon, married outside of the faith, and yet God still redeemed it, and God still used it for good. And then we get to verse 20, which is even more crazy than... Somebody marrying a Canaanite woman. Let me just read to you verse 20, and this is where the Lion King comes in, okay? <laughs> Says this, Amram, which came from Koath and, you know, from Levi. So down the, down the, down the line, eventually Amram comes. This is Moses' dad and Aaron's dad. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Moses and Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. Amram married his father's sister. This is his aunt, if you're like, he married his aunt. That's weird. Is that weird? That's, yes, it's weird. Okay, God, yes, that's, say yes. This is being live streamed. Say yes. They're going to think we're doing something. Thank you. That is weird. I promise that is weird. This is weird. Now, here's what's interesting. They even thought that this was messed up. They even thought this was weird because later scribes and translators, as they continued to copy and write down the story of the Israelites, some later translators actually changed the line where it says that he married his father's sister. They changed it to say that he married the daughter of his father's brother. Now, that means he married his cousin, right? Now, it's still weird, but not as weird. Now, the question is, why would some of these later Israelite scribes try to change it? Why would they try to change it? Well, the reason is because later later in Leviticus chapter 18, when, when uh, Moses is leading the Israelites through the desert on the way to the promised land, and then God is giving Moses the, the laws and the commandments for Israel. What does it look like to be a nation? How can they honor God? How are they supposed to live? In Leviticus chapter 18, uh, we see that it prohibited marrying a close, a close relative. In fact, in particular, in Leviticus, I can't even say the word. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 12, it, it says this, it says, do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. But technically, a cousin wasn't mentioned. And so the assumption by some of these later scribes was that certainly the lawgiver, right, the person who God gave the law to lead Israel could not come by means of which the law would later prohibit, right? They would assume, well, certainly God would not use Moses if he was his aunt, so we got to change this around so that this can be more believable or less weird for us. Now, again, Lion King did the same thing, right? You didn't know that Lion King was based off a true story, did you? No, I don't know. Now, here's what I didn't tell you. In 2016, uh, around 2016, there was a show called The Lion's Guard, uh, which was basically the show of Sumba and Nala eventually have a kid, and it's a show on Disney Junior about the kid and his friends running around. Well, they tried to change... The history and one of the one of the episodes is like a minute and a half where they try to talk about how Nala's dad fell from this tree and then Mufasa and his pack of lions saved Nala's dad and like watched him for a while before he like ran off after he had some kids or something like that right they try to change the history which the original animators of uh, uh, were honest. That this is kind of incest, right? This is weird. They try to change what's happening just like the Israelites, right? This gives a whole new meaning to the song, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? I'm just saying, you may never listen to that song the same again, right? Lion King, that's weird. Moses and Aaron, this is weird, right? You would not expect this. This is really weird. Now, we do have some good news, right? We do have some good news, which is helpful after all this craziness. In verse 23, it says this. Aaron married Elishabah, daughter of Amminadab and sister of Nashon. Now, Amminadab and Nashon actually show up um, in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew and Luke. And so we see, again, that Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We see that Jesus himself comes from this messed up line. Right, So there is at least some good news that God himself, Jesus himself, is from the tribe of Levi, which is the high priestly tribe. The tribe that was going to be the priest of Israel because Jesus is our final and high priest. So that would make sense. So that's some good news. But then it gets bad again. Let me just point out two more things that are weird. Um, and then it says this. She, so Aaron's, uh, Aaron's wife, bore him Nabad and Abihu, Elaziar and Ithamar. Now, what's, what's significant about this is that Aaron's first two sons, Nahab, or Nadab and Abihu, were the first two priests after Aaron of Israel. So as they're, in the Israel, or as they're in the wilderness, Aaron becomes the first high priest and his sons also become priests under him. Well, in Leviticus chapter 10, these two sons die because they offer up an unauthorized fire before the Lord. Right, because the holy, holiness and the presence of God, if you are in God's presence, cannot be messed with. It is not a joke. And so they end up dying, right? This is, again, what, not what you would expect from the kind of like the leaders of the Israelites. And I'll just give you one more example. In verse 24, it says this. The sons of Korah, which would have been Moses' cousin. It says Korah and his sons. And it says the sons of Korah were Esar, Elkanah, and Abasaph, and the, some of the other things. But well, here's what's interesting about this. And number 16, again, as the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness, uh, Korah start, tries to start a revolt with 250 men of Israel to try to essentially kill and take out Moses and Aaron. And then God opens up the earth and swallows them up, right? And so I say all this to, think, to say two things. You're probably thinking at this point, two things. Number one, did Dylan actually pronounce all those names correctly, right? You probably... I have no idea, okay? I, do, I, I promise, I do try to pride myself on learning how to say names, but when there's like 30 of them, there's just no way they're in Hebrew. I have no idea. Second thing, though, you might be thinking is, maybe my family isn't that bad after all, right? Maybe, maybe, as crazy as you, your family is and may, you might be, maybe it's not as bad as you thought after all. Now, again, the context of this genealogy comes when Moses is claiming that he can't do what God is asking him to do. And so God essentially references Ancestry.com to say your whole family is messed up, not just you, but it's not about you. And I think this is encouraging, this is encouraging for us because Moses is messed up, Moses' family is messed up, and here's what this means, that the family of God is full of people just like you. The family of God is full of people just like you. Now you might be thinking, wait, did he just say I'm messed up? Yes, you are messed up. One of my desires is to show us how unawesome we are, okay? Other than Roman, anybody? right, okay, other than my son Roman, right, because in our culture today, we're, we're told this lie that we're perfect just the way we are, we have no problems, if there's an issue, it's not about us, it's always somebody else, I think it's very freeing for us to see and understand that we are broken, that we do not have it all together, and that we need help in the gospel of Jesus, that he loves us right where we are, he doesn't love us when we're perfect, we have everything figured out, he loves us in our brokenness, in our mess, and he offers us grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And so what we see in the genealogy of Moses and Aaron is that God uses human sin and mistakes and redeems it. Right? This is what God does. Moses wasn't good enough, and neither are you. That's the point. Moses, Aaron, they have issues, their family has issues, and yet God still uses them. Now, of course. It's not to say that you are Moses or that I'm Moses and we're going to lead an entire nation, but God cares about every single person. And there are people in our sphere of influence that God wants us to use us to love and encourage them. And we're not called to do it on our own. That's why God, it's not about, God, it's not about us doing things for God, it's about God being with us. Which is why I'm not too much of a fan of this phrase, and I understand the sentiment behind it, but you might hear people say sometimes that God doesn't qualify, call the qualified he qualifies the call, right? He doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the call. And the sentiment behind that is that God doesn't ask us to have everything figured out but he uses us. He qualifies us as he uses us because it's not about us. It's about him. The problem with this, however, is it gives the impression or it gives the assumption that once you start doing something, then you're somehow equipped for the task. Like I'll just use me for example, right? And before we start a new city church and we're figuring things out, you would say God doesn't called to qualify. He qualifies to call. And so God was faithful, but it can give the assumption that now the new city is here. We've been around for three and a half years, all that sort of thing. That, that statement can give the assumption that I am now qualified that I now have it figured out, and that I now know what I'm doing at all times, When the reality is I'm just like you, that we're following Jesus, we're pursuing Jesus, and we're just asking God to use us so that we can play a small part in what he is doing. And so I say all that to say, and as we read this passage and we read the genealogy, here's what I want us to close with this morning. Here's what I want us to take away from Exodus chapter 6, and that's this, that God doesn't call the qualified. He calls the broken. He doesn't call the qualified. He calls the broken. He doesn't ask you to have a perfect family tree. He doesn't ask you to never have messed up. He doesn't ask you to have, to have everything figured out before God can use you. He calls the broken. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that we shouldn't desire to grow in our character, This does not mean we shouldn't desire to grow in our love for Jesus. This does not mean that we shouldn't desire uh, to grow in maybe certain competencies in our career, and our job, and things like that. Because God certainly uses us when we try to become better, when we try to be be in places where God can use us. Those things are certainly true. But even in that, it's always not about you. It's always about God using you. And this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel of Christ that Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The entire story of Israel throughout the Old Testament is that they could not measure up. They could not do for themselves what God is asking them to do. And so they would offer sacrifices day after day until Jesus shows up, who is the final high priest, who is the final sacrifice on our behalf, who is perfect in every way, who gave himself up for us, not because we deserved it, but simply because God loves us. The good news of the gospel is that those who are following and trusting in Christ, even in the midst of your doubts, even in the midst of your sin, even in the midst of your kind of questions and and the ways that you fall short, the good news of the gospel is that you do not have to have it all together. You do not have to have it all together for God to love you and for God to use you and for you to experience God's presence. This is why we often say here at New City Church that for those that know Jesus and are following Jesus and have given their life to Christ, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. You have nothing to prove because God and his graciousness, the king of the entire universe has been given to you. You have received the, the perfection and the holiness and the righteousness of God in Christ. You have been given to that as a gift from from Jesus. So you have nothing to prove because God himself loves you and you have no one to impress because God himself loves you. But right? If you don't have to impress, impress the God of the universe, you don't have to impress anybody. That God doesn't call to qualify. Moses, again, he was old. He had killed a man. He was on the run, and God is using him. He's, he comes from a family. His aunt and his dad, that's how he came to be. That's weird, right? God doesn't call the qualify. He calls the broken. He co- calls Moses. He calls Aaron. He calls you, and he calls me. The good news of the gospel is that God came into time to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And the entire story of Exodus is not just the Israelite people being rescued, but it is pointing us to the entire world being rescued and the person and work in Jesus. And so the invitation is to come to Jesus. The invitation is to follow Jesus right where you are today. Not tomorrow, not when you have all your questions answered, not when you have everything figured out, but right now, today, with your brokenness and your messed upness and your crazy family, that you come to Jesus, that you experience his grace and his mercy and his love, and you allow him to use you, not because of you, but because he is with you. God doesn't call the qualified, he calls the broken. Remember, the entire family of God is messed up, and there's always room for more. Let's pray.